Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to Human Circus. Today, the topic is a story that reaches us through a particular trove of historical documents. Something I've touched on among the bonus episodes, but not, I think, here on the main podcast. Those documents were part of a collection referred to in the late 19th century as, quote, a battlefield of books, a battle in which the literary productions of many centuries had their share. One observer, describing its contents, said that, for centuries, whitewash has tumbled upon them from the walls and ceiling. The sand of the desert has lodged in their folds and wrinkles. Water, from some unknown source, has drenched them. They've squeezed and hurt each other. That same collection was described rather more recently as a kind of holy junk heap. There were many steps, many intriguing figures, in the story of how that collection was, I will not say discovered, for there were certainly those who knew it was there, but how it was brought to light and brought to be studied. And that story is a good one, but it's not one we'll focus on today. That holy junk heap, located in Fustat, Egypt, was what is known as the Cairo Geniza, a kind of storehouse of all kinds of documents. And our story today is one of many that have emerged from it. It's a story of an uncommon businesswoman whose life reaches us in textual bullet points, tantalizingly few of them, but enough to show us something of her great wealth, her spirit, generosity, and strength. Enough to paint us a picture that is quite unique. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. Which is to say that this is the history podcast that generally follows those journeys through that world and the history around them. And it is a podcast with a Patreon, one on which you can find extra, ad-free, and early listening all for as little as a dollar a month, or as much as makes sense for you. Today, I want to particularly thank newest patrons Oscar Rodriguez and Rich Clark for their generous support. Thank you both very much. And now, back to the story. Today, that story is one that by necessity takes shape out of pieces. There is no fully-fleshed narrative to easily take up. No detailed record or writing left by our subject themselves 
from which to work. Instead, there are snapshots. There are legal documents found in the Cairo Geniza. They're among that vast collection. And I do mean vast. With 400,000 documents being the number that is sometimes given. The Geniza of the Ben Ezra Synagogue was a collection of sacred writings, holy writings, as such a place would generally hold. But in this case, also correspondence, contracts, court records, merchants' accounts, scholarly exercises, and literary material. Really, anything of Hebrew lettering, much of it incomplete, fragmented, but of such great quantities as to communicate a wealth of information about Jewish life in the medieval period. And not just strictly in Egypt, or even in that period, going as far forward in a field as an 1879 Bombay divorce, though that is not what this episode is about. Today, our story takes us to late 11th and early 12th century Fustat, to Old Cairo. That places us in the political center of the Fatimid Caliphate there, and into its final hundred years. By the end of the 12th century, Maimonides would be there, Salah ad-Din would be there, and the Ayyubid dynasty too, putting an end to Fatimid rule, but not yet as we reach the city. The Fatimid dynasty, claiming its origins in the house of Ali, still reigned and ruled over Egypt. But it was in decline, no longer stretching west along the Mediterranean coast of North Africa to Morocco, no longer stretching across the water to Sicily, no longer reaching up the coast of Palestine and Syria, or down that of Arabia. Recent history had seen the steady encroachment of the Seljuks, an assault that had been somewhat turned back before the even more recent First Crusade that had torn Jerusalem, among other holdings, from Fatimid control. Our main character would have been born in the time of the long-reigning Fatimid Caliph, Al-Mustansir Balah, but she would see the seven-year reign of his son, and then see rule passed to his son, only five years old at the time. Power held in this later period by the vizier Malafdal. But our story today is not so much about the doings of kings, caliphs, or viziers. Today, our story is about a Jewish woman named Wuksha Maldalala, though that was not the name she was born with. Wuksha had been brought into this world as Karima, meaning the dear one, and she was brought into a quite comfortable place in that world. Her father was an Alexandrian banker named Amar, the son of Ezra, the head of the community. But that didn't leave her with as much initial wealth as one might expect. Perhaps that was because her father also had two sons, and at least two other daughters to provide for. The name she would come to be known by, the one by which I introduced her, carried its own meaning. Uksha was a term of endearment, meaning 
the desired one, or one without whom one feels lonely. Al-Dalala was a term referring to her work, the broker, though she seems as much as anything to have been a banker, a lender, or, as she's described in Hoffman and Cole's book, Sacred Trash, a quote, sort of private pawnbroker. Her life, as I mentioned, comes through to us in splinters, bones around which we might imagine a full-bodied life. Fortunately, there are at least a few of those splinters, and S.D. Goitin, a foremost expert on these sources, did a great deal of work to locate them and bring them together for us. We know, for example, that Wuxia did not remain in Alexandria, for we have her marrying in Fustat to a man named Aryeh ben Yehuda. He was a stranger to Fustat himself, a Sicilian, and apparently a man of few means, for he brought only a very small gift to the marriage, even given the low expectations for the man entering a marriage when compared to the bride's dowry. Goitin wondered if her inclination to be, quote, too independent might already have lowered her chances for a better, or at least richer, marriage. Perhaps that same independence had already allowed her to achieve such a position that she did not particularly care if the groom had his own wealth. Though I have elsewhere seen it supposed that the marriage was on some sort of emergency basis. We know that in any case, the union would not last, ending in early 1095, for we have the fragment of a transaction that refers to her as a divorcee, and a document that tells us of Aryeh then marrying another woman, though again, not for very long. We know that Wuxia's marriage to Aryeh would result in a daughter, perhaps the cause of the marriage itself, a girl named Sit Gazal, or Lady Gazelle, who we later see buying half a house in 1132, and referred to there as the daughter of Al-Wuxia. Documents long after her death would tell of her relations, even distant ones, by their connection to her. For such was her impact on her immediate world, and such are the sort of pieces in which her life is sketched out for us. Enough of these documents, these pieces, have come down to us to paint something of a picture of Jewish women's lives in medieval Fustat. Letters, including one written to Maimonides from his sister Miriam. Marriage contracts, details as to bride's possessions or divorces, court appearances, wills, gifts, transactions, domestic disputes, and more. You see a little of the work of other Jewish women of Wuxia's time and place, spinning, weaving, dyeing, working within the home, and the selling of these textiles, the business of the marketplace. They engaged in commerce, generally on a small scale, in money lending, medicine, and, in limited cases, in the trades. You see a dealer in Hebrew books. You see women in disputes with their husbands over control of their own income. But among this collection of sources from the Cairo Geniza, 
none appear so often as Wuxia does. None, understanding absence of evidence and so on, appear so successful as she was. She was a fascinating figure, enough so that the family of Goitin, the scholar who I mentioned before, remembers him frequently talking about her, every bit as if he had just run into her in town that morning and had fresh gossip to pass along. Certainly, there was plenty to gossip about. There was, to start with, her conspicuous financial success. Her status as a woman working as an independent broker did not make her particularly uncommon, but her status as an incredibly successful and wealthy one certainly did. By the time of her last will, we see that she'd amassed nearly 700 dinars, a very substantial amount, given that just two would make for a comfortable monthly income, given that her 700 then amounted to enough for nearly three decades of life in retirement. Some 300 of these dinars were actually in gold that she kept hidden at home. Some 60 left deposited with another woman. As for how she made at least part of that wealth, we see in that will that she was owed money by those she'd given loans. And in a court record from 1104, we see a snapshot of some of her other business activities. The document mentions a trading venture in which she was involved, one from which 22 camel loads had already arrived. But it was more directly concerned with another bit of business. One of her brothers had been part of a three-merchant and 800 dinar venture to Gujarat, India, to purchase lac resin, the product of insect secretion used in wood finishing, dyes, and cosmetics. The three took a well-traveled route, increasingly so for Mediterranean Jewish traders from about the 10th century onward, bringing spices, dyes, metals, textiles, aromatics, and vessels of brass and bronze. But it was not without risk, not without many possibilities for trouble at sea and on land. And her brother and another of the merchants had never returned, both murdered on their journey home in the Red Sea port of Idab. Uksha had been an investor in her brother's portion of the expedition, a common enough practice, and to claim her share would sue the only surviving merchant of the trio, a man well known to us, a trader by the name of Joseph Lebdi. 300 dinars of the purchased goods had by that point already been sold, and three years had passed. This lengthy delay was likely caused by the difficulty of extracting the dead men's goods from the government of Idab, which would certainly have claimed the possessions of any foreign merchants dying in their territory. There was also the issue that the three merchants had carried a wide variety of goods with them, and there was some uncertainty as to whether these were also included in the partnership. A complication that would again raise legal questions another three years later, 
regarding the belongings of the second dead merchant, the one not related to our protagonist. Something of Wuxia's wealth we see in records such as these, and in her will. Something of her dealings with money we see in a 1098 court document concerning an encounter at the synagogue that was witnessed by a teacher named Moses and by the sextant's brother, among others. In the spring of that year, Wuxia had presented herself and asked to see the judge, for she'd been summoned, she said, and she wanted to know why. For what reason had she been troubled? A man named Ula Halevi had appealed against her, she was told. Or rather, she was reminded. She'd been asked already to appear with him before the court, and having failed to do so, she had, quote, deserved a public notification and warning. At this, Wuxia scoffed. She waved it away with impatience as a waste of her time, as was witnessed written down, and signed to as truth. What do I owe to Mr. Ula that he should make such a claim against me? She asked. All that is due to him for me is five kirats. For five kirats, he makes such a fuss. The matter was too trivial for Wuxia to bother with. One might wonder if it was not simply convenient for her to behave as if it were it always being a lot easier to laugh off a debt as unimportant and unworthy of your attention when you're the one owing the money. But in this case, her imperiousness does seem to reflect her disdain for the smallness of the matter at hand, even perhaps for the authority of the judge that summoned her. Evidently, Mr. Ula, known through his frequent appearance elsewhere in these sources, as one of the more prominent members of the community, still thought it worth pursuing. Her public performance of a carefree attitude to small monies aside, the document is an example of her friction with authority, but not friction that results in her portrayal as being stubborn or insolent, something that was a fairly commonplace occurrence in the records of women who appear before the court in these sources. This was a society in which Maimonides would soon be writing that a woman should perhaps only leave the home about two times a month. The sort of restriction or normative suggestion of modesty or hiddenness that seems not to have affected Wuxia herself all that much. The document is also interesting in that it shows us she was known to the three judges who were present. Otherwise, as Goitin points out, such a record would certainly have included the standard phrase, after the establishment of her true identity. But in her case, that preliminary step was completely unnecessary. There was no need to establish her identity for everyone knew who she was already. As to why that was, we'll get into that after this short break. Join 
us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Our Wuxia wasn't widely known just because of that earlier divorce of hers. Something which was not totally uncommon. It was, in part, because of her position as a very publicly active businesswoman, who went most of her life unmarried, and was, in addition to this, because of a hint of scandal about her personal life, a publicly known hint, and enough to reach us now in writing, something which was to have happened about the time of her divorce. It comes to us from yet another court record, this one from years after Wuxia's own death. This one concerning her son, Abu Said. He had not been born from her brief marriage to Aryeh, and he had sought to establish that his birth, while irregular, was not of the sort to disqualify his own marriage to a Jewish woman. Two witnesses had been brought forth to tell his story, the story of a man named Hassoun from Ashkelon, a city fallen to the First Crusade, and the story of Wuxia herself, who, it seems, anticipated that something of the sort might one day happen, and was entirely capable of handling matters on behalf of that son, as yet unborn. The first witness was a man, by that time an elder, named Abu Allah Yafeth. He remembered a day, clearly many years earlier, when he had sat in the company of the cantor, Hillel ben Eli, since dead. It was the cantor who Wuxia had come to see, for she had long known him, the man who had written her marriage contract and would also write her will. The man whose son-in-law would, years later, Take down this fairy record. Wuxia, on that day, had wanted advice. She had had an affair with Hassoun, she said. The affair, sometimes characterized in translation, more along the lines of a falling in with, a getting stuck with, a quagmire, or simply a slept with. Either way, she was pregnant. They had contracted a marriage before a Muslim notary, but she was worried that he would deny that the child, soon to be her son, Abu Said, was his. What, she had come to ask the cantor, should she do? And Hillel had practical advice. He had told her that what she required was witnesses to support her assertions, people who might then take her side should it come to it. He had told her that she should gather such people and have them surprise her with Hassoun, so that they could verify what she said. The second witness, a ritual slaughterer, tells the court how it went when she followed this advice. I was living in the house of Habat Allah ibn al-Sukari. May God accept him with favor, he said, 
the family name he gave, a common one referring to a maker and seller of sugar. I was living on the ground floor for many years, he went on, while Alawuksha, the broker, had her domicile in the uppermost part of the house. In those days, she came down once to one of the tenants, the name then given meaning the son of the preparer of vinegar sauce, and to Abraham the Jerusalemite, known as the son of the Morahit, the performer of a type of poetry, and said to them, Please come up to my place for something. The two of them went up with her and found Hassoun sitting in her apartment. And with that, the manuscript breaks off into illegibility, with some mention of wine and perfumes, details as to the circumstances in which they found Hassoun, perhaps among others since lost. But even with what survives, it's a document with much to tell us, not least of which is of her housing situation, there in that apartment building, above the second witness, something which was quite unusual for a woman of her financial means, maybe even enough so to say eccentric. But it does allow us the opportunity to imagine the scene as something of a sitcom, a few of the characters gathering around in one of their apartments, and then another rushing in from hers to announce that she had a problem that needed solving. The group trooping upstairs to find Hassoun there in his wine and perfumes. That first witness went on to speak of how Wuxia's pregnancy with Hassoun was thus confirmed, a pregnancy he described as resulting from illicit relations, though not so illicit that the boy born from it should be ineligible for Jewish marriage. It is that illicit relationship that then explains what he goes on to say. He recalls that she had later been in attendance at the synagogue on Yom Kippur, and that, when she had been noticed, she had been expelled, had been very publicly banished from the synagogue. So there was that hint of scandal I mentioned, that irregularity in her personal life that had led her to marry before a Muslim notary. It's worth noting here, as something of an aside, that Jews, including Jewish women, of this period and place, did have the option of bringing cases and concerns before the Muslim authorities, an action that would sometimes bring results other than appealing to their own. As for this case of the Muslim notary, it is something that is often read as meaning that Hassoun had another wife back in Ashkelon, in which case he could still have married again with permission of the first wife, which she either refused to give or was not asked for. Sometimes it has been read as meaning that she lied about marrying Hassoun at all, leading many writers to describe her as having her child out of wedlock. She would, unless she had already then divorced him by that point, have had to include him in her will, something which she certainly didn't do. In any case, this was evidently not the sort of irregularity that led to ostracization. Not by the cantor, Hillel, she'd asked for advice, a court scribe, no less, and not, it seems, by the others, 
the members of the community who willingly aided her in establishing her son's legal standing. Not, quite probably, by the community of that synagogue which she'd been publicly expelled from, for she would leave it a healthy contribution in her will, a document which, fortunately for us, we have. The will is undated, but the date of its creation is not a complete mystery to us, and is generally estimated at around the turn of the century. There's what we know of the man who recorded the document, that same Hillel who also advised her on her pregnancy, and whose writing features frequently in the Geniza documents in the years just prior to 1100, but never from then on, when, given what is known of when his career started, he is thought to have died. There's the information it contains about her son, not yet having begun to learn his prayers, something he would have done by five or six, though the will may have been produced when he was much younger than that. The document of the will consists of four pages, seventy short lines of Arabic, detailing who should get what and what should be done. Main points of the will of Wuxia, the broker, it begins... To my brother shall be given one hundred dinars from the objects given to me as security, as well as a pair of fiver rings and a fine linen robe. The rings in question are thought to have had five parts. To her sister, when fifty dinars from those objects given to her as security, along with a few garments, including a mourning dress and a half-mantle common to bridal outfits. To her paternal uncle's daughter, five dinars, some clothes, a pair of silver rings, and her bed. To her other sister, only ten dinars. The disparity between sisters, perhaps an indication of a recent gift that Wuxia had already given one of them, of their having separate mothers, or of something else. From the debts that were owed to her, Detailed in other documents, charity was to be given. To the cemetery, a very substantial twenty-five dinars, quite separate from her own funeral costs. To the synagogues of Fustat, twenty, and to others, five. The money set aside for lamp oil to aid in study. To the poor of Fustat was to go twenty. To someone's wife, maybe the widow of her brother, five, to that woman's brothers, five each, and to a relative of Wuxia's, an orphaned girl, two dinars. For her funeral itself, Wuxia spared absolutely no expense. There may have been some defiance in her choices here, a desire to publicly assert herself, to not allow herself to be forgotten easily after her death. Fifty dinars were to be set aside for expenses, which was an unusually high number, an exorbitant sum in Goitin's assessment, and enough for just over two years of modest middle-class life, here spent on an itemized list including the pallbearers, coffin, brocade, and fine garments for six 
any remaining money to be distributed among the cantors who were to follow her coffin. It was an expensive funeral, but certainly one she could afford, and definitely not the main focus of her will. That, I think, was her child. Not her children, notice, for there was nothing there for her daughter. No mention of Lady Gazelle, from whom she was perhaps now estranged. All her attention was directed to the future of her son, Abu Said, and to what his future might hold. There was money, of course, the roughly three hundred she had on hand, and the sixty deposited elsewhere, in addition to all she possessed in cash and kind, in rugs and carpets. There was education, in scripture and the prayer book, to the degree it was appropriate that he should know them. She didn't need for him to be a scholar. And there were provisions for a teacher, who she named, a blanket and sleeping carpet, so that he may remain at hand and provide nighttime instruction, and five dirhams per week, a very modest wage indeed, totaling to just over a quarter of that modest monthly income I referred to before. Should her son reach maturity, all of this should be his. But there were arrangements, for if he did not, if, quote, God forbid, death overtook him before. In those sad circumstances, the money was to be split half and half, one going to the synagogues and poor of Cairo, the other going to her family, to her brother, sisters, and the daughter of her uncle. As for her son's father, Hassoun of Ashkelon, quote, not one penny shall be given, except the two promissory notes concerning a debt of eighty dinars which he owes me shall be handed over to him. I found an interesting response to this document in the book Charity and Giving in Monotheistic Religions, in which Miriam Frenkel writes this, quote, Besides the sweet personal revenge that Al-Wusha took on Hassoun, her lover, and the father of her son. The most striking feature of this will is the extravagant sums dedicated to charity. In spite of her impressive commercial career, Al-Wuksha remained an outsider and could not really penetrate the massive walls set up by the male elite. Ostensibly, she was not bound by the ethical code of the elite group. The codes of honor and proper conduct did not obligate her, and indeed she ignored them in personal conduct, as was manifested in having a child out of wedlock and by her extraordinary behavior at the court of law. However, Frankel went on to emphasize, Wuxia strove to learn and adopt that ethical code, and charity was part of that. It was one of the instruments that, quote, forged binding reciprocal links between the members of the elite, and as such, was central to the economy of symbolic goods. Charity, Frankel concludes, as enlarged and distorted in Al-Wuksha's mirror, shows itself to be a basic component of the economy of real as well as symbolic goods. Wuksha, it's important to remember, was not producing this will on her deathbed, 
when she would not really be around for any of this to matter much. She had some of her life still to live, some in which to jostle for status and position, if indeed, as Frankel asserts, she was looking to do so with the composition of this will and with other acts of charity. As Goitine nicely sums up Wuxia's life, quote, Al Wuxia certainly made an impression on her contemporaries because, on the one hand, she was an exceptionally successful businesswoman, her estate being about five times as large as her marital outfit, and on the other hand, remained unmarried most of her life. On top of it, she had a love affair, which produced for her an heir. She, her husband, and her lover were all strangers in Fustat. She was unique also in that she appears as a contributor to a public appeal, the only woman in over a hundred such lists. But as he goes on to remind us, we shouldn't get carried away with ourselves and with this idea of Wuxia as some kind of unicorn. Our sources, for her time and place, while relatively bountiful, are also painfully finite. We don't know everything. Don't know, indeed cannot know, every one of her contemporaries or those around her era. Even with the incredible opportunity to encounter so many of them in the documents of the Geniza, and it does not lessen her status as a figure of immense historical interest to admit that we do not know exactly how representative a picture our sources present. That said, she certainly stands out for her immense wealth, her charitable generosity, and her strength in representing her own interests and those of her son. I hope you have enjoyed her story today. We will leave it there. I'll be back soon on the Patreon with some extra listening, back everywhere else with the next full episode, and I'll talk to you then. and circus will return. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.